0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Coming off the best week of the year, markets ended flat on Friday. The U.S. Air Force's top secret B-21 Raider bomber being developed by Northrop Grumman made its maiden flight from Plant 42 in Palmdale, California in broad daylight this week. The Federal Aviation Administration is recommending the grounding of all business jets powered by Pratt & Whitney engines that might include parts of Uh, made of potentially contaminated powdered metal. This, as General Electric, pays nearly $10 million to settle charges. It sold parts to the Army and Navy that were improperly inspected or didn't meet specifications. After speculation that the U.S. Air Force was interested in a fighter variant of the T-7 trainer by Boeing and Saab, the plane's prime contractor, Boeing, says that it is focusing on the trainer version that's already behind schedule and over budget. This as Boeing experienced a ransomware attack that led to the disclosure of proprietary parts and distribution information. Airbus, Cameron, Hensolt, Leonardo, and Ryan Mittal all reported third quarter earnings. And China appears to be working to mend military and commercial ties with Washington and strike a rapprochement with Canberra uh, and what to expect from the Dubai Air Show that is already underway uh, in the uh, great UAE city. Joining us today, as they do every week to discuss all this and more, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abelafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, uh, welcome back, uh, and thanks so very much for making time for us. Great to be here, Vargo. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Always a pleasure, Vargo. Yeah, great to be on again, Vargo. Thank you. Uh, an absolute pleasure uh, having everybody on. Ron, uh, really quickly, walk us through uh, how uh, the aerospace and defense group performed against the wider market and drivers. Right, everything from more uncertainty, war in the Middle East, uh, kind of a rapprochement between uh, Beijing and Washington and Beijing and and Canberra, which can be seen maybe as positive news. Anyway, walk us through how the group performed.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was a mixed performance in the group this week. Um, commercial aerospace names broadly did better but there there was a lot of capital markets activity so let's walk through that first and then we can talk about some of the the market performance spirit aero systems did a couple deals this week they raised 200 million dollars um, of equity so they did an equity deal they did 200 million of a exchangeable deal um that's kind of like a convertible bond this is these are notes that can be exchanged for equity it's kind of like effectively they did 400 million dollars of equity then they also did $1.2 billion of bonds. Raytheon did a deal to help fund their buyback of $6 billion of bonds. Then Transdime reported this week, and in that report, they announced that during the quarter, they did a $1.6 billion deal, a private placement bond deal. Uh, anyway, that was sort of the capital markets activity, and that's a lot for our sector in, in a given period. Anyway, um, the top performer on the week was Triumph Group. They were up almost 30%. Transdime reported this week um we can talk about that later maybe but there was across all vectors it was very very good stock was up almost 12 percent Boeing was up two percent Raytheon was awfully flat the defense names were down call it maybe a percent and a half pretty much across the board um Embraer was up three percent so if there's a little bit of a trend here names that have a, a little more volatility to them tended to be up the VIX index you know people have been listening long enough that the that, that index of fear you know When higher beta names are up, the VIX is down. The VIX indeed was down. It was about 14 right. and a half in the week, and just not that long ago, it was well over 20. The government 10-year bond has been you know, kind of bumped up a little bit, end of the week, around 4.7. Um, and we've honestly we've been in this kind of 4.5 to 5 range now for quite some time. It seems to be where things are settling in. WTI crude actually fell this week, you know, given all that's going on in the world. Again, surprises me. WTI was down 77 down to 77. Uh, Brent crude is about $5 more always. And that was at 82. Uh, And that's kind of where we were for the week. So it was kind of mixed, um, a lot of volatility, some reporting, and a lot of capital markets activity.
0: Um, What about uh, up on the Hill? Um, The government, the measure uh, that funds the government runs out at the end of the week uh, and a lot of speculation whether or not we're going to have a government shutdown Are our, our investors asking you at all about that at this point or are they assuming at eh, the last minute they'll figure something
1: out? Yeah, there, we haven't had a lot of incoming on that, surprisingly. Um, there's been more interest in commercial aerospace and mm-hmm. my sense is, and your aftermarket numbers this quarter pretty much across the board and for some companies were just huge, I you mean, know, you know, 30, 40% kind of aftermarket growth got people really thinking about commercial aerospace again. And we're starting to get the the end of the year question. You know, Sash probably gets the same question. Um, you know, next year should we be OE or aftermarket focused? I mean that that question's coming in a lot. We did not get many questions about funding on the Hill. Um now that could happen this week, right? I mean, you know, the, the market tends to be a little myopic on things. So you know who knows? Maybe we'll hear hear more about that. Or I guess my my underlying sense is that I think the the market does sense particularly you know funny time of year right going into the holiday season if you really shut down the government and all these government employees went home without paychecks and the holidays um that there's that somehow the can will get kicked down the road yet again somehow or another
0: sash uh, give us your quick take uh on overall markets because we're going to discuss uh earnings in in just a minute but how did the group perform against uh, the broader market
2: um the sector was up overall um in europe about a percent uh there was pro- a little bit a, a little bit of, sp- of, of spread on that even within the defense names i mean there was very you know the defense stocks were up about 0. 0.8 civil uh, was up 1.5% um so you know it You'd think from that it was a risk-on week. But interestingly, within that, Airbus was actually off uh, over the whole week. And Airbus is the, the biggest single uh, company in the sector. What dragged the, the civil side of the sector up, actually, I think the whole sector up, was Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce is just you know on a bit of a tear at the moment. I mean, it's up um, 150% year-to-date. They've got a capital markets day um, uh, next or the, the week after next. And I think the market just thinks that, Having been the laggard in the recovery because it was so tied into the um the Asian long haul uh, aircraft market, um, this is Rolls-Royce's year. Now, is that going to continue through into 2024? I think they, you know, the, the bar is set very high for management of the capital markets today. But that's really been what's dragging uh dragging stocks up. Otherwise, um, mainly it was results that were that were moving stocks. Hensholdt, which we'll talk about later, had a pretty lousy set of results, and they were off 5%. Um, right. The market is not prepared, certainly in Europe, to tolerate defence stocks that don't show growth at the moment. Uh, and that, that's sort of quite a sobering thing. Um, We'll get to earnings in a minute.
0: Richard, I want to ask you, right? I mean, we talk a lot about China uh, and obviously the increasingly frosty relationship and the disconnect, the great disconnect that's happening uh, between uh, China and investors, not just in the United States, but also uh, in Europe. It was a rapprochement week. Obviously, the president hosting uh, Xi Jinping in San Francisco for a large Asia Pacific conference uh, in San Francisco uh, this uh, coming week. you know, mill to mill contacts are uh, created. So we have the hotline back. Uh, we had Janet Yellen uh, in uh, China uh, and obviously a rapprochement also between Australia and uh, Beijing, given that Australia's number one trade partner is China. Um, give us your sense on how you think this plays into a, a broader message or not.
3: Yeah, I would definitely focus on not because, you know, it seems like the emphasis on de-risking um, you know, the strategic standoff between the U.S. and its allies and China is sort of crowding out what used to be the primary area of concern, which is, uh, you know, coopetition or whatever it was, commercial relations. You know, up until a couple of years ago, there was still the, the possibility of maybe when, you know, Xi and, and Biden or Xi and Trump or whoever got together, there'd be a grand deal that reopened trade and, uh, and and whatever else, that's that's no longer the focus. That far from it. The objective is, as you say, mail-to-mail contacts and de-risking the, you know, the standoff every time ships come with it or aircraft come within a few a few dozen feet of each other. So I, I think dreams and expectations of China resuming, also frankly, just China from an economic standpoint and from an air travel growth standpoint increasingly looks like the great disappointment of the century. Uh, and all the numbers speak to something that is simply not going to be what it once was and the number one question we've gotten in in recent months uh you know it, from from clients very very common question is uh, how quickly if ever can india be the new china both from the standpoint of market demand and from manufacturing and whatever else and uh, that's a complicated one but the point is that i think no one has any illusions about china returning to the source of production and great source of jetliner market demand that it had been in the first two decades of the century.
0: Sash, you want to give us your take on that from a European investor's standpoint? I mean, how do you view this dynamic that we're seeing?
2: China is a massively important uh, customer, and I mean, that's why I, I, I slightly balked at Richard's description of China as a partner, um, Even you know, particularly for Australia. It, it's a customer, ultimately. Um, and it's becoming more of a customer and way less of a partner for almost any Western country nowadays. But it's a it's a, it's a massively important customer for um, European countries, particularly Germany, uh, and that skews the whole of European foreign policy uh, and you know, policy towards China. And Germany is trying, I think, with you know pretty good faith, to work out a way to, if not decouple, certainly to de-risk right. uh, that part of the relationship uh, going forward clearly for europe europe has nothing like the um uh, the the proximity physical proximity to china that either the us or or uh, australia have and therefore this is something that most european politicians believe can uh, you know can be done in slow time uh, i wonder whether that particular assumption would stack up if uh, the chinese would do anything stupid over uh, taiwan almost certainly not
0: um and uh, you know i mean the challenge with uh, china is right it can be a venomous uh, or or capricious um, uh, partner, uh, right? I mean, for whatever reason, anything that seems like it's criticism results in a cessation or you know messaging, right? Whether on rare earths, we're not going to buy your beef, we won't buy your wine, uh, we won't buy your seafood unless you th- see things our way. And obviously, they're such a massive market that they have uh, a lot of market making power. Um, I want yes, to go to earnings. but
2: I would say to that, I think this is one of the areas where the European Union has been just off the scale valuable for Europe and for the smaller nations, which is that it basically takes a commerce view of an attack on one is an attack on all. And so the Chinese really um, uh, dumped on uh, Lithuania about a couple of years ago when Lithuania started. Uh, being much more uh, positive towards Taiwan and, and also just very, very cautious about relationships with China. The Chinese tried to bully Lithuania and I think found very quickly that the European Union stood up for Lithuania way more than they expected, um, right. which I think was a great outcome.
0: Uh, it is uh, terrific. And I think that the EU deserves an enormous amount of credit, not just in that incident, uh, right? Because it could have said like, well, it's just a small country. Whereas it said, no, I mean, this is fundamental to democracy. And if you don't like it, uh, you, c- you can uh, you can jump in a lake. And obviously tying into the efforts of this administration to get everybody on the same uh, sh- uh, sheet of music. Uh, Ron, uh, uh, why don't you uh, take it away and then we can get into earnings. Like Zash mentioned with roles
1: uh, and how it's performed, we've seen the same thing in the US that names that were generally historical underperformers so far this year it's been a good year for them that you know the the, the 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 companies that are generally recognized as higher quality companies higher quality equities some of them have done well but the the companies that have really done quite well this year are um what I call the higher beta names and they tend to be companies with more aggressive balance sheets more spotty operating history, that kind of thing. So um, the the, the trading dynamic for roles, we've seen the same thing in North America.
0: Um, Let me uh, take you, Ron, to earnings, right? Transdime and a couple of other uh, big names uh, reporting. Uh, Give us a little bit of a more granular take and uh, Sash, I'll turn to you in in just a moment. Yeah, I I think a really interesting one
1: this week was uh, Transdime. Um, Transdime historically has been a very strong operating company been a it's been a very good equity to own for a long time and you know a lot of the questions now you know just the way the markets are traded everybody's like how's the quarter going to be how's the quarter going to be trans time and I always hate to frame it this way because it's you know I don't know just they crushed it right I mean their operating numbers were good they paid a special dividend they did M&A defense grew oe grew aftermarket grew kind of every vector that you could pick for them they exceeded Um, and that i think that really got investors kind of salivating over commercial aerospace. i mean that was sort of the the final you know the final icing on the cake (laughs) and that's why you know kind of back to your question on is anybody focusing on the government it's just uh, everybody pivoted to commercial and my sense was and and maybe Saj can talk about this in Europe, there was a little bit of commercial RO fatigue. Yeah, you know, the U.S. airlines aren't reporting great numbers. And, it, you know, it just seems like maybe the shine's come off that a little bit. You know, that rose is maybe getting a little faded. Um, and we saw many of the, the commercial equities kind of sell off over the last couple of months. And I think this quarter in particular, and trans in particular, kind of refocused everybody. So it's interesting. That being said, it should be an interesting setup for defense into next year like we've mentioned many times defense stocks tend to do very well during presidential election years independent of who's running um and this year the defense stock performance relative to say the market and the more cyclical industrial names they've underperformed so the setup in the next year actually could be very good
0: and before I go uh, to Sash for uh, European earnings, a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors, our daily podcast. HII sponsors, our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors, our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors, our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors, our air and naval coverage. Uh, sash, uh, give us your sense. Uh, some very big European names reporting. Obviously, Airbus, uh, we heard from Kemring. Uh, the innovative British company uh, you mentioned, Hensolt and their not so good quarter. Leonardo reported, and so did Ryan Metal. Walk us through uh, what some of these big names had to say, especially our friends uh, at Airbus.
2: Yeah, okay. So I mean, Airbus first of all, because it is way the most important European uh, stock. <clears throat> the results were the results were pretty good with a couple of very distinct, very distinct glitches, but. Their civil civil aircraft business is performing well. I don't think they are going to have problems delivering 720 aircraft this year. Next year, I'm not so confident. Uh, Next year is the year that the shortage of Pratt & Whitney geared turbofans really bites. And I think the trade-off that Pratt & Whitney is going to have to do between do they deliver engines to Airbus and do they deliver engines to their very, very suffering airline customers, I think that will become acute. In the second quarter of next year, and interestingly, I don't think Airbus management on the uh, on the financial analyst call really were able to be convincing of, on that particular issue. But you know, in terms of deliveries this year, they are actually, I think, comfortably on track for 720 aircraft, unless something went horribly wrong in December. And I think they've got the visibility into December now. Um, uh, you know, for, for that not to be um, an issue. Um, What's going wrong with Airbus is the wretched defence and space business. Defence and space is a business that most investors don't care about. It's way smaller than commercial uh, commercial aircraft. And then I mean, Airbus is valued. The Airbus stock is traded on the basis of civil aircraft uh, demand and profitability. The problem is that the defence and space business keeps taking away a lot of the goodness that, that commercial air, uh, aircraft uh, deliver. So put it in context for this year, um, Defence and space will be not, not a lot better than break even. The only reason why Airbus is able to keep on uh, maintaining their full year guidance is, is the uh, commercial aircraft businesses, but is clearly performing better. But defence and space, where are the problems? Satellites. Satellites just stink at the moment. Um, partly fixed price contracts, because most commercial satellite contracts are fixed price. Partly shortage of um, uh, parts, so delays. And partly, just some of these contracts are being sold into a very, very crowded space, and they can't they can't make money on that. They've taken a four hundred million charge on two big programs, one of which we think is OneWeb, uh, the um, effectively you know broad competitor to uh, SpaceX's or um, um, uh, Elon Musk's Starlink, and the other probably a European governmental program, uh, possibly Pleiades Neo, although they haven't said that, um, and. All that does is really get them back to zero there. I think the space business is going to continue to be really tough. But the other thing that's really rather distressing is that it, they're just not making a lot of money out of defence. They've probably only got one profitable defence business, which is Eurofighter. Now Eurofighter should be fine, producing lots of aircraft for exports, for Germany, for Spain. But every other programme, whether it's A400M or Euro drone, um, or development work for SCAF is being done at zero to negative margins. And they're trying to restructure the defense and space business. They talk about spending 300 million euros over the next couple of years. I just don't think it's going to have a lot of effect because this is a sovereignty business. You've got to keep all of these capabilities in France, in Germany, in Spain. Uh, You can't take costs out between the the countries because the governments won't let you. I think they just, it's going to be a drag on what would otherwise be a very good commercial business for a long time. So, you know, Airbus was very much a, I think, well, you know, we'd refer to that as curate's egg. Just look at the other stocks very briefly. Um, I, I think the most interesting stock of the lot actually was Rheinmetall, uh, the German based defense company. They had a fantastic uh, set of results. Their order intake, um, uh, they had a booked-to-bill of about 1.5 times. That doesn't happen very often. Um, you know, if you look, their vehicle systems business, which makes armored vehicles and trucks, revenues up 41% in the quarter, EBIT nearly doubled. The weapons and ammunition business, again, earnings doubled in that business on revenues up about 40%. Um, they are seeing the German 100 billion special fund come through. Um, they got about 8 billion, uh, slightly more than that, of orders just in the third quarter alone for businesses that right. in the third quarter were turning over two and a bit. It's a it's a very, very strong uh, way to play the German special fund, the German Seitenwender turning point. By contrast, Hensolt you couldn't see the orders at all. The orders were very, very weak. They're just not benefiting in the same way that Rheinmetall is from demand for armored vehicles, from demand for munitions, for guns, i.e., for stuff that is being used in the Ukraine and for stuff that is being bought at, you know, to, to recapitalize the uh, the Bundeswehr. Hensoltz has got some big, big long term contracts, Eurofighter radar, um, Pe- uh, Pegasus uh, electronic warfare aircraft, but it's not getting the same level of emergency funding orders. Uh, And it was a real compare and contrast between those two. Um, Kemring, they are becoming quite an important European munitions producer. They're going to nearly double their capacity in uh, explosives, warheads, rocket motors. That's exactly what we want to see. But they lost a a big contract for detection systems in the US and are shutting that business. So, um, you know, two steps forward and one and a half steps back there. Finally, Leonardo. Well, most interesting thing about Leonardo, I think, I and mean, it wasn't a particularly dramatic set of results, but the degree to which the uh, new CEO Roberto Cingolani, was, uh, you know, effectively trolling France and Germany over the slow pace of the F-35 um, uh, program and comparing that with, uh, you know, the Tempest uh, uh, Global Combat Act Program um, right. being done with the UK and, and Japan, which is clearly progressing at a pretty decent rate now there's been a a, a denial from germany about germany possibly withdrawing from fcas in favor of joining gcap i love denials like that Uh, as soon as a minister has to deny something like that tells you there was a germ of truth somewhere in the story we'll see
0: um, yes, and we've we've followed these over long periods of time, denial, 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 and then all of a sudden, uh, it's happening, right? And um, you uh, just want to also mention that Ryan Mittal, uh trying to expand uh, in the United States after that OMFE, that optionally manned fighting vehicle win, which was uh, which was a, a giant step uh, in indeed. Um, Richard, I want to bring you in and kind of get you, we have so much more to discuss, but I want to get your take um, on uh, those earnings uh and airbus uh airbus in particular and ron going to come to you in a minute as well
3: yeah you know i mean it was very interesting to hear Sasha's comments about airbus military of course quite on you know quite quite on uh you know, taking away from the, the goodness that is commercial as he put it but i i think it's a little worse than that i mean you know first of all eurofighter is indeed delivering planes uh to kuwait and to the you know to the Germans, everyone else I think has stopped. In matter of fact, I know everyone else has stopped. Uh the Germans keep signing for, you know, a trickle of eight or ten per year or something like that. Project Quadringa and anything that happens after that, maybe they'll get more. Uh, but unless they agree to sell Tranch two to Saudi, which so far they're not, this is a troubled program that's winding down to one a month at best. I mean, unless you can think of other possible export customers, and I sure as hell can't. Uh I, you know, this is an even bigger drag. And as Sasha said, That's one profitable program. The A400M, meanwhile, gets from bad to Actually, it kind of reminds me of the old Black Adder line. It began badly, trailed off a bit in the middle. And the less said about the end, the better. And uh, I I think we're at that towards the end phase where it gets even worse. You know, so I think there are so many drags. But, of course, you know, if you believe the commercial ramp is still going up um, once they overcome the GTF shortage, uh, then that should hopefully make up for it. You know, I mean, they're the overwhelming winners of the commercial game so far. And this week up ahead, as I'm sure we'll discuss with Dubai, even better. Uh, They'll look even better. Uh, Now, in terms of the other earnings, you know, very interesting. You know, Ron mentions trans time aftermarket. I would argue that's an awful lot of it. You know, I mean, there's that bullwhip effect that we're seeing so profoundly in aftermarket with people who destocked, you know, restocking. And of course, you've got aircraft coming in for shop visits and whatever else that had been whatever had been deferred uh very 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 strong and I, I would argue that's you know the thing that's really helping rolls out too you know they've got this one they're not winning anything new to speak of except for military which is great that's military but on the commercial side their one great strength is a 350 shop visits that are really starting to look like they're going to ramp up and of course they've got 100 of that market so it's wow. all about the aftermarket that i think is driving uh sentiment uh from the standpoint of, the, of these companies um this week
0: Ron you, your take on Airbus and everything that's happening in Europe
1: um yeah I mean the Airbus numbers on the commercial side seem you know quite good um I think you know Sasha's concerns are um kind of stuff I'd be thinking about it's, it's it's interesting to note however you know Boeing's defense is struggling too right so the two large commercial contractors are both struggling with their defense businesses um, and like like I said you know you're, most folks focus on Boeing on commercial but you know defense is a is a more significant part of uh of the company the the one question I might have for Sas, if I may um what sense did you get if any about um the, the negotiation between spirit Aerosystems and and Airbus because that's something that's on I think you know people's minds who are interested in in spirit Aerosystems
2: Oh, yeah, no, that, I mean, thanks for asking about that. Sorry, I should have brought that up earlier. It was very, very interesting indeed. I thought that Airbus were much less inclined, or Airbus management, much less inclined to do Spirit a, you know, a sweetheart deal than Boeing is. Um, I mean, in fact, Airbus management said very clearly, um, we're not as, um, uh, you know, we're, uh, Spirit isn't as important to us as it is to Boeing. Um I mean, yes and no. Uh, for the whole company, I think that's the case. And particularly for the A320 family, that's the case. Spirit is a very, very small supplier. But clearly for the A220, um, Spirit is the biggest single supplier by a long way. And uh, I think that Airbus is probably going to negotiate much harder than Boeing did. Uh, I think that they they need to get the costs of the A220 down. You don't get the cost of the A220 down uh, by paying Spirit more for everything that it supplies. It's just impossible. Uh, and I think that in the extremists, Airbus would be more interested in basically taking the Spirit facilities off their hands that do the work on the 220, particularly the um, uh, the, the old shorts business in Belfast, than they would in paying them any anymore uh, for, you know, parts and so forth, part of which will just go to reward Spirit shareholders. That's not really in, in airbus's particular interest so they played hardball on this one um and i wouldn't have come away from there feeling particularly happy if i was a spirit shareholder
1: and and, and sas if, if i may just i'll go if it's okay if I can fire one more at yeah, yeah of course um is it even possible to take cost out of that airplane is it possible that the a220 is just because of the materials it's made out of the time at which it was designed the capability capability, the airplane—it's just more expensive to build than anybody had hoped. That it's just a more expensive airplane to build. Like, I mean, how much cost can you really take out of it? I'm j- they're
2: just curious. I think on the air structure side, uh, it is possible to say it costs out. Although uh, part of that, part of that relies on price. Part of that relies on rate. If Airbus could get the rate up, they have this ambition of getting the rate up to 14 aircraft a month. Problem is they don't have the backlog for that. They just don't have the orders at the moment. Um, On our numbers, they get up to about 11 a month in 2027, something like that. But they really do need to get to 14 a month and then some uh, to to go go down the learning curve. The other thing they need to do is just get suppliers prices down. all of the supply prices for A220 were negotiated by Bombardier. Bombardier had the weakest negotiating position of any aircraft OEM. And ultimately, that's why they bailed out of the program. Um, so Airbus has got to get the prices down from um, uh, from Spirit for particularly the wings and the mid-fuselage. They've got to get the prices down from Raytheon Technologies. for so pretty much all of the avionics and electrical systems. Uh, good luck with that, I would say, uh, at the moment. I think they're in a very, very difficult position in terms of getting price down, but but rates may may contribute part of that. May
3: I just kick in a question? Yes, I was,
0: uh, was going to ask you to kick in.
3: <laughs> yeah, a quick question. I mean, you've got the resin transfer infusion uh, composite technology in Belfast kind of at odds, I think, with Wing of Tomorrow and what Airbus is doing, given that divergence and given the possibility of maybe even a new wing on the a220 in the long run maybe even on the a320 and more likely or possibly more likely being a wing of tomorrow wing where's Airbus's motivation in taking belfast and its rti technology or indeed is there a case
2: for both or or is it still competitive we're definitely into councils of despair here but it's (laughs) it may be that they think that they can manage uh, the Belfast site and the RTI better just because they'll have better visibility and they'll be less, you know, intercompany friction than having Spirit as a as a subcontractor. That's the, um, you know, that that's the plan B for uh, for for, Air, for Airbus. But plan A, I just don't think involves paying Spirit more money.
0: Speaking of pain uh, and tears, uh, let's uh, discuss uh, engines. But first, a reminder to our audience to check out our weekly podcasts, uh, our award winning weekly podcasts, Cavas Ships, hosted by Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marina, GE Aerospace Company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast, sponsored by uh, GE Aerospace, that I co host with our very own JJ Gertler. Um, Both Pratt & Whitney uh, and uh, General Electric Aerospace uh, appear uh, to have uh, had challenges on the engine uh, front this week. The FAA recommending uh, that uh, all Pratt uh, & Whitney powered business jets uh, face inspections because of the powdered metal issue that has uh, impacted the geared turbofan that has expanded. And then in GE's case, GE settling, uh, uh, paying about $10 million uh, for uh, parts that were improperly inspected or uh, didn't meet uh, specifications. Ron, kind of give us your sense on on both of these uh, dynamics and, and what do you guys, what do you think it means, especially since, you know, you were the one who called it very early in this whole powdered metal affair, that it was likely going to expand and sort of keep going and spread to other uh, parts of the business, including perhaps even on the military engine side. Uh, even if, you know, some folks in the company argue in, and some folks in Pratt argue, almost all the things that are being affected by this are things that would be replaced over time in an engine anyway.
1: Yeah. Um, well, there's kind of truth to both sides. But when you when you look at what's going on here, the, the FAA published a proposal to ground uh, 63 engines. Um, and these are uh, engines, they're the PW307A and PW307D um and those are the engines that power the uh the so uh, 7x and 8x and and the, the issue here are the first and second stage high pressure high pressure turbine discs uh, and the recommendation also um, prohibits um installing certain replacement discs so there's there's a subtlety here um and, and I know if this is broadly appreciated it wasn't for us um that the current fixes that are going on, on on the aircraft and new engines that are being shipped actually are being shipped with um discs that have a limited life because they're they're being shipped with discs that still have the contaminated what were fabricated with the contaminated powder um so I don't, I don't think that's broadly understood and so I think it's the middle of next year they're going to start you know shipping engines that um have um discs that weren't fabricated with that powder uh and in an MRO shops so they'll start fixing engines with disks that weren't contaminated but for now they are so everything that's being shipped now and being fixed now has to be refixed again later um the this airworthiness directive recommendation came from um an aircraft uh, I think it was in Europe where it had an uncontained failure uh and if you look at the you know the broader fleet of 7Xs and 8Xs. I mean, the DESO has an international footprint. So this is focusing on kind of what's in the U.S. um, registry, but there's a global registry for these aircraft. And and I think this is also focusing on maybe you shouldn't be fixing engines with disks that were contaminated. So we'll see where this goes. And I think this is an important thing to keep an eye on, because if you think about the evolution of this, it, it initially started with which just on the v2500s and then it spread to the you know, PW 1100 and now it's on PW 300s and we'll see where this all goes um but it's something definitely to watch and I, and I think this is an important one
0: uh, Sash and uh Richard your your take on both of these
2: V2500 is actually arguably the most important program that um for Pratt in terms of aftermarket and you know just a really nice mature program and also clearly for its partners, Japan Aero Engines and MTU. Actually, B2500 has been pretty okay so far. It, you know There has been an uncontained uh, failure of that, but there's not been either the groundings or the uh, rectification program that Pratt, Pratt has had to announce for the gear turbofan. If they had to announce a rectification program of a similar scale to what they're doing on GTF for the V 2500 then it would dwarf it in um, cost, in our in our view, because there are so many V2500s in, in service. And that would actually probably bring airline growth to a bit of a crashing halt for a couple of years because it would take so much capacity out of the market at any one time.
0: Richard?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a number of issues here, but I don't think they have much choice but to ship engines that have this, this troubled um, metallurgy on board. I mean, it's a very bad situation, and of course, it's not made better by their uh, prioritization of share buybacks rather than investing, uh, or at least just the appearance. Because you know, even though there's not much they can do, I think optics really matter in situations like this. So, I I, I think it's just you know, a lot of this is just reputational, um, cash and reputational. Those are pretty big, really.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, is it a tenable? Approach though, and where do we need to think this is going to hit next? Right? I mean, there there are folks who are going to look at this and go, Well, the engines are fine, but the lifespans are shorter, but we have an uncontained failure. Nobody likes the word uncontained failure and engine when you have two engines on an airplane and there's a lot of hydraulics and things like that that are in the back of business jets ultimately, right? I mean, is there no other approach to this ultimately
3: well from a you know I, my perception is that from a, a safety problem it's it's really not that big a problem at all uh, it's stuff that needs inspection uh it's it's a it's a longevity issue rather than a, oh my god it's going to fail we're going to have a you know a complete disaster i think the risk of that is not materially greater than you know with a non-troubled engine it's just that you're accruing this big bank of Aircraft engines that need to be modified, replaced, whatever else—that's a problem. But the you know, it's not like these are fundamentally flawed from the standpoint of of yeah risk of uncontained turbine failure. Certainly not. Right. Um, well,
1: but, but but hang on. I mean, the I think the genesis of the the three hundred um, recommendation wasn't uncontained failure. Um, so and maybe that's because it went too many cycles or whatever. But right. that, that, that's one point. And then the other point that I think is really important is this changes the whole aftermarket dynamic because it it when you you when we try to model um an engine right you 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 sell it for new and and business structure a little bit different but you sell a new gtf at a loss and then you you hope to make a return with you know your various maintenance events over the life of the engine and you know you're if you're If you're lucky you get three if you're really lucky you get four they're spread out by five years and so on and so forth roughly speaking it's all kind of rough numbers but this is messing that all up all right so that first maintenance event maybe even the second one that's all some of that's going to be covered by warranty now it's all getting pushed out so when you think about the ultimate return on a program this really changes the, the dynamic fairly dramatically
0: do, do you think, uh, Ron, it's only a matter of time before it gets to the 135 and on the military engine side of it as well? I mean, you'd raise I don't,
1: that I, 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 Honestly, I mean, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I, I mean, just speculating here, I mean, I think I think it is an issue, but there probably, and maybe you know more about this than me, the, the inspection cycle on the 135 is probably different and so on and so forth. So will could there be the, and most likely will be, a a, an increase in a maintenance event you have to change the discs will there be a cost associated with that who bears that cost that's probably all going to happen but you're going to have a massive grounding of f-35s probably not right just because of the how military aircraft are maintained and and ultimately in the scope of maintaining an f-35 even if you have to pull an engine out and change the discs it's probably not that big a deal
0: i mean sadly right um, it's uh, going to be very interesting to see in part because those engines are being run harder than they had originally been planned anyway uh, in order to generate power uh, for the airplane, which is obviously one of the challenges. And and and, and the key, and one of the, one of the keys is if you are truly running the engine harder,
1: it's generating more heat and that's going to propagate more cracks. I mean,
0: there's, there's, right. there's no way around. That's just the physics of it. Right? That, so that was, that was, yeah, yeah that was, okay. that was my thinking is right. There's, um, it's 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 a it's a challenge uh R- richard do you want to uh take a bite uh at this before we go to b21 which we have to discuss as well as uh the uh, uh the on again off again story about the t7 to the f7
3: well just you know make the point that pw300 has been in service for what 30 years now and lots of different applications I, there isn't necessarily a clear line of sight between this problem and that but again optics matter and you know that's gonna that's gonna play a role here moving forward. But the PW three hundred is it's one of those you know engines of reference in the business jet space. It's and and unfortunately bad things do happen, especially with high cycle engines and whatever else. So I, I think it's it's you know we ought to we ought to be clear about what is a problem from a new technology and what is simply you know just happenstance from a large fleet.
0: Um, I, I just want to uh, shift gears. Ron, uh, get your uh, take on uh, the maiden flight of uh, Northrop Grumman's uh, B 21 Raider bomber, uh, top secret program, left Plant 42, flew over Palmdale uh, in broad uh, daylight. There were folks who were saying, hey, wait a minute, I thought this was super secret. Why? Why is this uh, happening this way? Well, you don't want to do many, you know, test flights that are in the middle of the night. Uh, anyway, walk us uh, through the impact on this program, because it was, you know, the jet was rolled out uh, late last year and in a year's time did its taxi test and did its first flight, even though virtually nothing is known about the program aside from, from that. Although we did get a look at the plan form and some different angles that we didn't see it from before.
1: Well, I think it from roll out first flight, it beat the 787, right? Um, maybe that was a low bar, but, um, the, it mean, it's always encourage, I mean, it's always encouraging when you have your, your, your first, you know, your first flight. Um, I didn't see if they put the landing gear up or down. Um, I mean, they were down for sure, but did they put them up or not? I don't know. Probably they didn't. Um, but yeah, you know, it worked, right? It flew. They, and they, they brought it back. Now that's, you know, that's super encouraging. And then you start opening up the flight envelope, um, I think what's more intriguing is your first observation they did it in broad daylight. Well, obviously they're sending a message somewhere in the world, right? Look. <laughs> Look what we have. <laughs> um that's right. that's got that's got to be part of that. Um but you just, you know, how flight tests work, right? You start opening up the envelope, you put the landing gear up, and you cycle the landing gear, uh, and then you just start doing more stuff and then I would imagine some of the tests that get into more um uh I gotta say it's sensitive missions and sensitive capabilities. They'll probably do that secretly somehow. Um, but that's 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 yet to come. But um to be honest with you, that kind of caught me off guard. It's pretty quick, right? They got it in the air. And that, you know, good for them. That's that's fantastic.
0: Uh, it's uh, it it is exciting, and it's also in, exciting to see uh that Palmdale still continues to play uh an important role uh in uh, the Air uh, Nation's capabilities. R- Richard, anything you want to add on on B twenty one?
3: You know, just impressive, good achievement, as Ron says. You know, um, uh, obviously to state, You know, one reason I think there wasn't a whole lot of secrecy wasn't just to send a message. It's just that. From a distance, up in the sky, it looks an awful lot like a B-2, you know, smaller with a few differences, but, uh, you know, the same idea. So, uh, you know, it it was sort of a a reminder that we can get programs right, but also a reminder that we're, boy, we've been on an aeronautical plateau for quite some time in this industry, and I'm not sure that's changing. Uh, How so? Well, you know, I mean, like we were discussing last week, it's entirely possible that NGAD looks a lot like or sort of has external characteristics that are a lot like considerably older fighters f-22 maybe even f-15 in the case of boeing and yeah you look at the big victory this year v280 you know big differences between that and the v22 but hey same concept you know it, it just looks like a whole bunch of great stuff was done during the cold war we're revisiting it refining it improving it but uh welcome to the plateau uh
0: i but i think we will see uh some variety with um um, a collaborative combat aircraft uh, that will look uh, a little bit different. And hey, right, as I said, I'm a big F-4 Phantom fan. Put the right avionics and right capabilities in an F-4 Phantom and slap some better engines, newer engines on it, even though the J-79 is a legend. Uh, and, you know, you have a very compelling, fast, long range, high payload airplane um, that, uh, that can still uh, get an awful lot of things done. And hey, land on aircraft carriers too
1: can I jump in here real
0: quick? Yeah, of course. Yeah, just kind of in
1: in response to my esteemed colleague, Richard. I mean, look at a Tesla. It's still a a box with four wheels, right? But what's changed is the propulsion system and the Intel, the avionics, that kind of thing. So, I mean, there are just certain constraints. It's got to have wings, right? And, you you know, you can argue about what's the most optimal shape and so on and so forth. And kind of getting back to the, the concept of you know doing a flying wing as opposed to a wing with two you know tube with a wing and a tail uh, like the jet zero guys are doing but I mean that even that jet zero concept has been around for a very long time um so it's you know the the layout the the ultimate geometry of the aircraft I mean there's just certain constraints like a car until you can figure out how to make a car hover truly like you know levitate um you're gonna have wheels so but the propulsion systems will change electronics will change that kind of thing and you know that's I think what we're in for and the CCAs ultimately are electronics they will allow you to operate these things autonomously semi-autonomously or however you want to do it Um, but they're still going to have wings and they'll have a propulsion system
0: um, we have to go into a little bit of a lightning round before we wrap up. Uh, Richard, um, you know, JJ on the Airpower podcast, uh, said uh that an F seven, uh, that uh a, a variant of the T seven trainer was under consideration, and I think uh breaking defense wrote last week, uh, some form of confirmation from U S Air Force officials saying hey, uh, this might be something. Boeing then putting out a statement and saying hey, we've always thought about doing a fighter version of this airplane, but we are focused on uh, delivering the T-7 an airplane. Unfortunately, that's behind schedule and over budget. Um, Walk us through what the merits of an F-7 is ultimately. And Sash, if you want to take a bite out of uh, that apple, and then uh, Ron, have a uh, quick question for you uh, before we go.
3: Yeah, three positives, one negative. Uh, You know, very interesting news. Uh, Kudos for helping to break it. Uh, You know, and JJ, you know, first of all, new airframe you know i mean uh, it, it it is it, it, latest and best in technology and if you can adapt it to a fighter terrific leveraging that new technology also good news possibly for boeing they signed this goofball horrible fixed price contract with options that covers like what 470 aircraft or something like that under you know oh trainers, something like that and you know it's like i don't know how you make that good except if you do something <laughs> different that presumably could be priced at a you know Better price. You know, that that would that would certainly help a lot. Third, of course, possibly this is despite Boeing's efforts to get better pricing, it might still be relatively inexpensive. And that might be the Air Force's only path to getting more squadrons. Remember, I think it was Air Force Association a couple of years ago. 386. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh well, maybe this will help make it happen because that idea of let's buy lots of super Ducados, that was clearly really a non-starter so maybe this is the path there now the bad news if you're actually looking for combat effectiveness depending upon what you can do with this and depending upon prices uh the gap in terms of range and payload between this and an f-16 is enormous so you know basically you would have to price this relatively low to make it an appealing proposition as a squadron filler um otherwise if you're just looking at combat power you consider resuming f-16s especially If Lockheed Martin gets aggressive, you know, they haven't been terribly commercially aggressive in recent years, but let's say they do that and say, actually, we could build you, you know, a a block 70 something Viper for only 50% more than F7, you know, in which point you say, and by the way, it has, you know, payload range, double, triple, whatever. So you'd be foolish not to buy it. That would be, you know, sort of the way to fight back. But again, there are three positives to focus on here that could well play out.
0: Um, uh Sash, uh, let me get your quick uh, take on this, considering that Poland uh, was one of the nations that bought a lot of F-50s from Korean aerospace. So that, you know, a, a, a kind of a light fighter, there are folks in the market who think that there is value to it.
2: Yeah, um, I think Poland is an, is an, a remarkable exception to the rule. Generally, light fighters have performed way less well than any of the, um, you know, marketing uh, and salesmen have expected them to over about forty years. BA Systems invent, you know, did a derivative of the the classic Hawk trainer, the Hawk two hundred, didn't sell very well at all. Um, uh, Leonardo has been offering uh, fighter variants of the M three forty six for some time, and again, just not selling. Korean Aerospace with the um, the F fifty the T fifty is the exception to the rule, um, and the poles have ordered a very large number. The the argument against them has always been these things don't have uh the space, the power, um, the payload to carry the defensive systems that are required uh in a, a contested battlefield. And I think it's the reason why you know nobody else in Europe is doing it. Uh, good good luck to the polls. It will get them some sort of combat mass. But um I I'm astonished that the US Air Force, even it seems to me to be a sort of Council of Despair for the US Air Force to be looking at something like this. Frankly, why not buy more F-16s or indeed keep F-16s in service for longer? You don't have to trade down to something with so little uh, capacity for growth as a uh, as a T-7 um, or an F-7, if that's what they want to call it. Um, we are almost uh, completely uh, out of
0: uh, time. Uh, Ron, uh, give us your quick uh, sense. D- d- any Anything big in the ransomware story out of, of Boeing at this point, right? I mean, just breaking and uh, they were subjected to a ransomware attack. Any financial impact to that really quickly before we yeah, get, not, go around the horn?
1: Yeah, not that they've expressed to the market. So um, I don't know right i mean if there is they haven't told us about it yet and maybe there wasn't so it's yeah it's probably at this point it's it's too they're holding their cards too close to, to know
0: and everybody gets 30 seconds uh ron uh sash and then richard what you guys expect to hear from uh the dubai air show go around the horn go ahead
1: yeah i mean it's you know um the big thing i'm keeping an eye on is um aircraft orders um uh, wide body orders narrow body orders uh, what wh- what comes out of the show and and you know how that how the year ends for the the major Oems uh, and in backlog um see how Embraer does I mean, a lot of folks lose focus on Embraer, but how Embraer is doing in the region and 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 so on and so forth um I think Richard will talk about this but it seems like everybody in the world wants to be a super carrier so with that
0: I'll hand it over to Richard Richard, go ahead
1: no, oh, thank you.
3: Yeah, it all kind of reminds me of the uh, the wonderful end of Mel Brooks, the producers, you know, where the warden and company are all buying 10, 20% shares of a play, you know, adding up to, of course, thousands of percent. It's exactly the same thing. You know, it's the first out of the box might be the Turks followed by the traditional Gulf carriers. You've got Morocco interested in getting in the game. You've got legacy carriers in India getting back in the act. OK, there just isn't that much long range international traffic and certainly not long range international traffic growth to justify all these numbers everyone is taking X percent and expecting it to pay results. So I think there's an awful lot of traffic double counting going on here. You'll see that in full force from the many hundreds of air order, aircraft orders you'll see at the show.
0: Indeed. Uh, and Sash, bring us home.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with um, uh, Richard about sort of the, the double counting and everybody wants to be a, um, a mega interconnecting carrier. Um, listen, this, let's be clear about the Dubai air show. It doesn't matter anymore. The fact that none of us are there tells you it doesn't matter as a show, anything like as much as it did 10 years ago, let alone 15, 20 years ago, because the, we're past the peak of, uh, Middle East carrier expansion. Fascinating gentlemen. Uh,
0: thanks very much. It's always a pleasure having you all on, uh, and look forward to having you guys back on, uh, next week. In, in the meantime, hope you have a great weekend, a great week, and we'll see you again next week.
1: As always, it's great to be
0: here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. Yeah, great to be on. Thanks, Vago. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Appreciate it very much. And a special thanks uh, to Bell and all of our sponsors for their generous support that makes this program uh, possible every day. We'll see you again uh, tomorrow on our Look Ahead program. Until then, have a great day, and we'll see you again tomorrow.